This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the third installment of the Fall 2015 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter at, at John Greathouse. So we have Trip Hawkins with us here tonight. Trip is an internet pioneer. He's a pioneer in the tech industry. Um, it's fun to bring people in that have a perspective of history. Um, Tripp's worked with some icons in the business, and we'll talk about some of those icons. Um, and he's, he just has a wealth of insights to share with you. I'm going to quickly give you a um, little bit of context for what Tripp's been up to. Tripp, from the very beginning, has wanted to help nerds ru rule the world. Okay? He has wanted to help nerds rule the world. And if you look back on his career and the way he promoted uh, certain nerds, and the, even the way he named his company, um, you can see that he's had that idea for many, many years. He found, founded and built Electronic Arts. I believe it's the third, second or third largest gaming company in the world right now. Uh, to this day, it's a thriving um, enterprise. Um, and he, he played a key role in defining the early PC industry, going all the way back to the very early days of Apple. He also pioneered along the way because he was, at the beginning, he had to pioneer ways to get these games out there. He had to pioneer ways to um, get folks uh, to use these games. In the course of doing that, he created a whole new product line of uh, sports games. You guys have heard of um, um, John Madden football, but obviously the whole EA sports line was in and, in and of itself a huge success. After, um, after he left Electronic Arts, he founded a couple other companies, 3DO, which was started out as a hardware company and then morphed into software. We'll ask him about that. Uh, and he also headed up Digital Chocolate, which was another interesting company. Between those two gaming companies, they created numerous award-winning games and generated over 200 million app downloads of their games. Since then, he's worked with emotional intelligence experts, and he created a game called If, the emotional um, IQ game. And that's an interesting concept where he took the concept of education um, and gaming and trying to bring them together. And we'll ask him um, how that turned out and what that was all about. He's a Hall of Famer. He's the only speaker I've ever had who was a Hall of Famer. He was named, he's the only industry executive that was ever named to the, to the Gamer Hall of Fame. Um, and he's also, he also received a Lifetime Achievement Award from IEEE. So extremely successful across a variety of businesses. Um, but again, I try to bring in folks that, that deliver multiple messages to you, not just that they've um, done really well in business. Uh, Trip is very philanthropic, and he's very community-oriented. He was a co-founder of the successful Menlo Church up in San Mateo, um, and he also advises entrepreneurs and CEOs to this day as a CEO coach, still giving time to nonprofits and advising nonprofits, uh, such as the Strong Museum of Play and the Center for Digital Research um, Gaming, which is here at little old UC Santa Barbara, which is where Tripp now calls his home. Let's give Tripp a UC Santa Barbara welcome. Good to see you. Wow, I'm going to have to take a drink. I'm exhausted. Please do. Please wow. do. I can, we can Cheers. go on and on and on. This guy's had an amazing career. As have you. <laughs> well, not quite as amazing as yours. So I, I, I like to ask the folks I bring in here about their way past, and then we'll talk about electronic arts and all that fun stuff. But going way, way back when you were growing up, 
when did you, or when did that light turn on that you were doing things other kids weren't doing? When did you realize that maybe you were this thing called an entrepreneur, even though back then, I know they didn't call it that. They didn't call it that when I was doing it, that's for sure. Um, and did you do any crazy ventures? Did you have little side deals? Or what, what did you do when you were annoying your parents? Well, I think this is something that many of you will resonate with if you really are a creative person or an artist or an entrepreneur. That you figure out when you're really young that you're just different mm -hmm. than everybody else. And you're not really sure why. You're not really sure how. You know, I don't think when we're young we know that much about ourselves, but you can tell that much. Yep. And you know, I um, evidenced some artistic talent when I was pretty young. Wasn't really sure what that meant. Uh, my, my parents were both artistic, so it, was, it just seemed kind of like a normal thing. Are you left-handed? No. Okay. <clears throat> Are you? No, but I just thought you were an art artist. You must be left-handed. Yeah, well, there you go. It's, a, it's one of those funny things. I, I really think entrepreneurship is like being an artist. I mean, yep. you have an, an artist temperament. Yep. If you're really an artist, like if you're a painter, you can't not paint. Yep. And entrepreneurship, to me, is kind of the same way. So I just noticed that you know, I would develop these uh, convictions and, and beliefs and desires about things and have kind of a uh, relentless purpose about it. Right. And it was a, a level of uh, intensity and devotion and focus that it was obviously pretty weird. You know, I mean, just, there wasn't anybody else around me well, that's why feeling I, that way and I, acting that way. I kind of said that with tongue-in-cheek about freaking out your parents, but I know I freaked out my parents oh, yeah. all the time. Yeah. They weren't entrepreneurs. They didn't really know anybody closely that was an entrepreneur, and they didn't know where all this stuff was, was coming from. And I completely agree with your sentiment. I, I, what I've said in the past is entrepreneurship is a compulsion. Mm -hmm. It's not normal. It's normal to just go get a job. Right? Let somebody else yeah. worry about yeah. the details. Just get a paycheck and watch Seinfeld or, or whatever. But... But we can't. Like, sometimes I wish I could just sit down and watch exactly. Seinfeld, but I exactly. can't do that. So you mentioned a couple, but what are, what are traits that um, you think are key to being a successful entrepreneur? Well, obviously, there's, there's the question of risk. You know, yeah. So the, the reason in our culture everyone's trying to get you to do something predictable is that they, they don't want you to take risks. But uh, you know, those of us that really are entrepreneurs, we love to be out on the frontier. We love to have the wind in our face. We love to uh, be out where nobody else has been before. Yep. You know, I don't know if any of you, how many of you have seen The Martian, the movie? I read the book. You know, so you, you look at those people, I mean, their, their willingness to go do that. I mean, I wouldn't do it. Right. You know, so I know that's not me, uh, those particular uh, people and what they're doing, but I certainly admire the qualities that, that they have and their, their willingness to just really put it all out there. And, yep. And I, I think in any human endeavor, you know, it's an admirable characteristic to have, and it, you know, it, may, it may even be a genetic trait for those of us that, that do it. Well, I think they certainly has been research on, um, on that, on risk-taking. They do all the prisoner's dilemma games and things, and entrepreneurs tend to rate pretty highly on that. But I think most entrepreneurs, and I think looking at your background, I, I, I completely see this, we don't see the risk when we have of the conviction. Not. When you have the conviction, <laughs> there is no risk. It's like, what are you talking about? Of course we're going to be like the largest gaming company in the world. Right, even when it's you and one other person. Well, obviously, we're opt optimists as right. our artists. Yep. And, and therein lies a question, which is, are we uh, therefore uh, unable to be realistic? Mm -hmm. I, I certainly feel like I've failed many, many times from not being realistic enough. But if you're not an optimist, you're not going to be an entrepreneur, and you're not going to get anything started. You won't even get out of bed. Yeah. Like, if you really think about everything that you're up against and all the things you're going to have to do to, to come mm -hmm. out the other end, you wouldn't even start. So I think it's it's a defensive mechanism in a way. It's like we're we're just not cognizant of the risk. I recall seeing a uh, study many years ago. They they went to a whole bunch of successful entrepreneurs and they asked them, 
If you knew everything you know now, back when you started, would you still have done it? And they pretty much all said, are you kidding? Right. No way. Right. But I actually don't even agree with that. I, I think, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, I mean, many of us, we go back again and again to the well, and we don't mind the risk. Uh, we uh, feel attached to certain things that are important. And, you know, you have to have a, a courageous spirit. You know, you've got to be willing to be out there and really not mind the failure because there's right. going to be a lot of it. Yeah, it can be, public, be a whole lot of it. Very public sometimes. Um, yeah, it's that compulsion thing where you just you don't have a lot of choice. So you end up creating changing the world in the gaming um, industry on a massive scale. Before you did that, were you a gamer? Were you an arcade kid? Were you that kid at the arcade with the quarters and playing... Um, I, I play all those games, like um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the post-pong, pre-computer games, uh, Space Invaders, those kinds of things. Yeah, I grew up alongside all Galaxian that. But for, all the, that. the way it got started for me is that I was, I was playing simulation games. Okay. You know, and you know, some of them were World War games, some were uh, you know, fantasy games like Dungeons and & Dragons. And then there was a, a sports product line that I liked that basically simulated team sports with cards and charts and dice. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I remember those games. So I was really playing computer games without the computer. Yep, yep. And I, I, I noticed two things. One was my brain was on fire. I mean, I was really switched on. I was, I was uh, so much more stimulated because I was managing resources and I was in an authentic environment making decisions and seeing what happened and getting to be the hero. Yep. And the only problem was that it's, it was kind of inconvenient because of the administration that you had to do. And I had a hard time finding other kids that would play those games. Right. You know, so. Because you're uh, different. I, mean, I don't know how many of you are. <laughs> who thinks you're actually a nerd? You know, we could spend all night just debating what that term means. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I think uh, you know, nerds have always been kind of outliers and perceived as being, uh, you know, socially inept. Right. And, right. you know, wanting to, uh, to do goofy, nerdy things, you know. And what I noticed was that everybody preferred watching television. So when I first heard about computers, and which was pretty close around the time the first arcade games came out, I realized, aha, you put the, you put the machinery of the game in the computer, and you put pictures on the screen like television. Yep. And, of course, it took us a few decades to make it like television, but that right, was right. always the plan. Right. So did you end up essentially creating games that you wanted to play? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly. where... The companies that become so successful, not all the time, but oftentimes, it's solving your own problems. Absolutely. It's sort of creating the universe that you want created. Well, and if you think about the modern thing about, about uh, design, it starts with customer empathy. Yep. So there's no question if you're a customer and you really know the pain points and you really know exactly what the important benefits are, right. you're in a much better position to invent and create the right product but also be the salesperson for it because you have such a strong belief in right. its effectiveness. Yep. But word of caution um, for the folks watching and also for the folks here, that is absolutely true. But because, because you become so passionate about solving that problem, you really need external market validation, right? Because absolutely. you might end up solving a problem that's a, acute to you and for other people. And that may not be worth solving, right? So you want to make sure you go out. And you want people to tell you no. You just want to understand, you know, no, it's not important or whatever. But you just want to understand why they're saying that. They might be wrong, but you want to understand why do they think it's not a problem. So before um, EA, you were an early employee at Apple. I think there's been 47 movies made about Steve Jobs, right? Maybe there's 50 now. Um, clearly, he's an iconic figure. You knew him when he was just this guy walking around without shoes in the hallway. Um, I'd love to hear maybe your favorite job story or just any insights you might have about what it was like to work at Apple in the early 80s? What, what was that atmosphere? Where's the myth and where's the reality? Well, he was, <clears throat> he was really a piece of work. 
when, when I started at Apple, there were a grand total of 25 office workers in the whole company. Wow. There were another 25 people in the back assembling about 100 hobby machines a month. <coughs> that was the extent of it. Okay. And, was uh, this Apple II or was it the original? This was the very beginning of Apple II. Okay, the beginning and of You really couldn't do very much with, Apple, with the Apple II at that point other than use it as a hobby programming right. tool. There, right. were, there were no applications available. There, there, we didn't have a storage device. We didn't was have it a, a printer. cassette or even before the cassettes? Or? Yes, you could take an off-the-shelf audio cassette. Because my dad did that. And use a DDA converter. There you go. Yep. And, and basically you could type in a program while you had the machine on and yep. then you could save memory out to the tape. Yep. And then when you try to reload it the next day, you know, good luck. Yeah, exactly. it, would, it might work about half the That's time. That's why my dad liked it, because it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard to yeah. use. Yes, yeah, fun pioneering. But it was in the very beginning, and the company was trying to figure out how to become commercially relevant. And one of the things I remember about Steve, so everybody knows about the two Steves, right. but the, the third guy was, who was critical to the formation of the company, Mike Markle, he brought in the first money, yep. and he was the first adult supervision. So he was my first boss. Steve was my really? next boss. And Markle, uh, he, um, uh, he, he asked me on my second day at the office, he said, hey, hey Tripp, you know, you know something about business. Go figure out how we can sell these to businesses, which is really what the PC business became. Yep. And I ended up partnering with Steve on that challenge, you know, with me thinking about the, the markets and the applications and the user experience and with, with him thinking about the, the technology and the design of it. But uh, it's funny because at the end of my first week at Apple, I was standing outside Markle's office with him and Steve was flashing by down the hall. And by this time I'd already figured out that there were issues yep. with Steve. He was different. <laughs> I think he was probably 22 oh, at the great. time. Your age. <laughs> anyway, I looked down the hall and I pointed to Steve and I said to Markle, we need to do something about that. <laughs> and it's just funny because uh, the, the four years I was there, four years later when I left Apple to start Electronic Arts, we had yep. 4,000 employees. Wow. It's a billion-dollar-a-year public company. So it, it was a lot of growth and a lot of change in a four-year period. Yep. But during that time period, Steve was absolutely unqualified to be a CEO, and he wasn't the CEO of that company. Right. And, of course, then you know, in a matter of years, he got booted out. Right. And he came back, and, and now, without hesitation, I'll tell you, I believe he's the greatest CEO in history. So I'm not that impressed when some uh, executive takes over an enormous Fortune 500 company and maintains it for a while. Right. If we're talking about the real challenges and difficulties in being a CEO, building something from nothing or turning around something that's absolutely painted into a corner. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he did that with Apple made it the most valuable company in the world. Yep. While he was also doing Pixar kind of as a hobby. Yep. I mean, it's just, it's really, and Pixar was Which a huge turnaround as well. Sold for billions, yeah. Yeah, you guys probably wouldn't know this. Pixar was a workstation manufacturer. Yep, next. Right. Well, well, no, no, this is not next. But didn't the software get, get folded into that? Or they got folded they, into that? They actually Apple? weren't related. Okay. But uh, George, George, of course, wanted to make good oh, special right, effects. Right, 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 so yep. he'd help start a company yep. to make the workstation and the software to do that. Yep. And it was a struggling company. Steve took it over. He put a huge amount of his own money into it. It struggled for years. And then it got turned into a movie company. How yeah. often does something like that happen? And then, oh, yeah, and then he's saving Apple at the same time. It's yeah. just, 
So he, he was a different guy. And meanwhile, said, Steve Jobs 2.0 was quite amazing. That company I mentioned next, he ended up kick-saving that by selling that to Apple too. That's right. Yeah, they needed an operating system and a, and a CEO, and that's what they bought. Quite convenient. I think it worked out for everybody. So I'm going to take the first student question in a second if, you, if you're ready. So how did you deal with, um, how did you learn to deal with jobs? I mean, I know everyone has their own stories about him being difficult. Did you have, come up with a certain technique or did you, was it just brute force or did you work around it? Yeah, you know, the, the context of your question is interesting because just a couple of days ago up in Silicon Valley, there was a panel and three women that I know quite well that all work uh, at Apple and work with Steve yep. were interviewed about that experience. And uh, I, I, I resonated with a lot of what they said. And, you know, he, he was colorblind. I mean, Steve basically didn't care if you were male or female or tall or short or whatever. He, he, but he was going to hold you accountable for your competence mm-hmm. and your intellect. Mm-hmm. And what those women uh, said is exactly what I tell people, which is, you know, you, you had to have your act together and you had to look them right in the eye and be willing to take them on. And, and if you could do that successfully, then he would respect you. And he, and he, and he divided people. So, like, okay, he, here's this small cohort that he decides to respect and he would yep. treat you better. Yep. Or I, just, I would say well. I mean, you know, he, he and I could have uh, yelling, screaming arguments, but it was done with mutual respect. Yep. And then I'd watch him just go destroy somebody else, uh, right. almost for sport. You know, it was, it was painful to watch. Yep, I bet. We'll take the first student question. Hi. I was wondering what your inspiration was behind starting If You Can, because it's so different in comparison to the other ventures that you worked on in your past. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I'd spent uh, a few decades as, uh, as an adult uh, learning about the brain and learning about social and emotional learning, which is the skill set that improves emotional intelligence. And my kids had had the benefit of going to one of the leading schools that has a a teaching program in it. And frankly, uh, I was discovering that it was stuff that I needed to learn. And I was starting to benefit from studying it and learning it and realize that, you know, uh, number one, it's about time we did a better job of making computers and games that have value in education because it, it, uh, it, it's a field that has struggled, uh, you know, in many cases because it, it does, we don't always have the best talent working on the problem and they don't have, always have a big enough budget. So, I thought, okay, I'm going to get the right people together. We're going to have a big enough budget and we're just going to crush it and try to do something really good and we'll do it in this field because there's no textbook for it. So this is a funny thing. Even, even to this day, there's not a good, solid, single book you can buy to use as a teacher or as a student of, of that uh, emotional intelligence topic. So like I did when I made John Madden football, I, I went and found the world's leading authorities and brought them in as the experts on the team. And we you know, put together a great studio team to build the product. But just, I just wanted uh, kids to have the benefit of being able to learn, learn these skills. Here's what you don't uh, realize consciously is that most of us don't have these skills because our parents did not have these skills and they don't have them because their grandparents, their parents didn't have them. And it goes back maybe over a hundred years, but we used to have these skills just like we used to have a rich social life. So if you picture where we would have been 200 years ago, we'd be in a little tribe and growing up as a child, every day you'd be alongside your parents. You'd be hanging out with the village elders. You'd be learning from everybody, participating in everything and a lot of uh, you know, uh, learning through observation and, and things being explained to you and going to religious services together. In fact, even to this day in Brazil, 
a boy in in an indigenous tribe, they're not told when to join the hunt. They just join it when they're ready. And what's amazing is that on average they join it when they're four years old. So these societies, you know, they're highly integrated socially, and a lot of it just kind of happens automatically. You'll get what we do now. I mean, you you just look at the last hundred years. You get big cities. You get uh, really dense living where, you know, you're um, surrounded by strangers every time you walk outside. You don't even know your neighbors. And kids don't grow up alongside their parents because their parents are either at work or they're missing. And they don't attend religious services. There are no tribal elders. So there's just a bunch of really important stuff that people just simply don't know about. And anyway, so this, this game, if it's inspired by the poem, uh, I highly recommend you read the poem. It's the most uh, popular poem in England. It's a poem that Rudyard Kipling wrote to one of his children about what character uh, he wanted them to have. And that's kind of what emotional intelligence is about. I will look up that poem. I think I know which one you're talking it's about. It's the one that starts out, if you can keep your head, well, all about you are losing theirs. Yes, yes, yes. yes. You know okay. Excellent. Well, let's go back. I appreciate that question. Let's go back a little bit more in time. So, so Apple's, you know, crazy, but you're learning a lot. You, you obviously got the itch, and you went out and did electronic arts. So what, what was the genesis of that? Kind of walk us through that. It, you, know, you look back on it, it all seems kind of obvious, but when you're in the middle of it, that's a big leap. You're leaving one of the hottest, coolest, happening companies on the planet, right? Why would you go out and start your own business? And what was the, like, I'm just really curious, we know what electronic arts is today. What was it in your mind back in 80, 82 when you started it? What, what, did you, what was your ultimate goal for it? Yeah, so the, the, the answer actually is that it started more than 10 years before that in ah. my thinking. And I had decided way, way back when, okay, I'm going to start a computer game company. And I so started. How old were you, do you think, when you had that first? So I was, uh, I guess I was you know, an early teenager. Okay. And you told me once, I don't want to get you off your answer, but you told me once that your original game was a survival game. So when did uh, you that's start? actually not true. I don't oh. know where that rumor got started. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Uh, Electronic Arts did publish one, though. Oh, okay. I've, I got that wrong then. So go, but you're going back. Oh, you here. know what I think you must be thinking of? My Dungeons & Dragons character was named Survivor. Really? Yes. <laughs> okay. So I, 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 that, that's the only possible way I could think that. <laughs> okay. So, so you, as a kid, you had this in your head. But even then, you didn't really know what that meant, right? Because computers weren't what they became. They certainly weren't what they yeah, were Yeah, but I got, I got to see a hobby computer... That it was actually a PDP kit that an engineer had okay. built that my father knew. So a motherboard that was hooked up with some kind of monitor. Yeah, it had you know flashing lights on it. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so you know, even as a uh, high school kid, you know, I, I already kind of had that had that the ability to project it. Yeah. I knew the technology would get better. Sure. I don't. I don't know why. I guess it's like I knew about Moore's law without having been told yep. uh, what it was. So I started crafting my uh, curriculum in school and my uh, personal hobby activities ar- around all of this. And then uh, I, was, I had a summer job. You know, you were talking about internships earlier. Uh, I had a, a summer job with a big uh, think tank uh, software company. And one of my colleagues came in after lunch one day and had actually been in, this is in Santa Monica, he had been in a retail store. And he said, yeah, you can go to this place and you can rent a computer terminal and take it home and, mm. and hook it up to the corporate mainframe yep. and pay only $10 an hour. Right, right. 
So that was with the phone modems or something? Yeah, or? basically. Yeah. And, and it blew my mind. Well, it turns out that was Dick Heiser's computer store. That was the first computer store in the world. Wow. And, it, you know, as you know, I mean, there's just so many times where serendipity does seem yep. to actually yep. play a role. Yep. Yep. But you've got to act on it, though. You gotta... Yeah, well, there, you know, this, was, uh, this, this conversation with this coworker happened in 1975, and he also was telling me about the, the invention of the microprocessor and where that was going to go. So I literally went back to my desk and noodled it out and said, okay, based on this new information, I need to start my company in 1982. Wow. Okay, and then I planned out the next seven years to prepare for it, and that included working for another company for a while, because I'd already started a company. Mm -hmm. I had had started a company to make a a football game using dice and cards and charts. I'd borrowed $5,000 from my father. I'd lost every penny of it, but I'd learned, number one, this is fun. And right, I want to do right, this again. Right. And I think the next time I want to be better prepared. Yep. Because it's miserable to fail, particularly failing creatively and having your, your creation be a dud because you screwed up the business. Yep. So there I am on this ridiculous plan. And it's kind of ironic because, you know, I think about my uh, collegial peer group, which includes not just people like Steve, but Bill Gates and others, that they all dropped out. Yep. And I'm doubling down, you know, trying to you know, do more with, uh, with school. But I uh, had it in my script that I was going to go work for one of the companies that made the home computers and help get them into the homes mm-hmm. to build the audience and then also learn by being part of another company before I try to do it myself again. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you, by the way, you, know, you talk about the idea of learning by doing, which is the best way to learn. Right. But you could learn a heck of a lot if you're just paying attention and you're highly observant, and you, you, go, you make an extra effort in whatever organization you're in to seek people out and, and have lunch with them or, or go out with them and just get to know them and learn, learn more about them and what they think and what Absolutely. they're doing. Yeah. And, that's and I really did that yeah. while I was at Apple. And, of course, Apple was going through so much. Right. It was a really amazing education. Yeah, people love to talk about what they're doing. And if, they, if you're inquisitive and curious <clears throat> and deferential, respectful, and all those good things, most people will overflood you with information, right? Yeah. If you're, if you're a good, if you're willing receptor. So in, in every function, every profession in an organization is different. Yeah. And it's, it was pretty fantastic to start to ferret that out and, you know, learn how to get along with different kinds of people and how to organize things. Yep, absolutely. And so 82 rolled around and yeah, it's time to go. And I went. So what we, so, so tell us what you thought the company was going to become in 82. Yeah. So, the, so I had already had the big idea. This is something else, you know, many of us, you know, I know the, uh, the acronym for it is the BHAG, the Big Hairy Audacious yep. Goal. Yep. So my big idea was, you know, while I was at Apple, I'm noticing these software developers that were doing the first generation bitmap graphics and, you know, WYSIWYG apps and mm-hmm. graphics and so on. And I was really, these, these guys are really creative and they've got an artistic temperament. And if they were making music or books or <laughs> movies there's a certain way they would be treated mm-hmm. and managed and how their products would get brought to market and how their personalities would be part of the story of the products. Right. So, yeah, nobody's ever done that with technology. Nobody's ever done that with engineers. Nobody's ever done that with games. Uh, I'm going to do that because it really is an art form. It really ought to be thought about that way. And, mm-hmm. and you know, okay, now how do I build the best company? And I realized, well... There's always going to be a lot more ideas outside the room than inside the room. This is a, even this room. This is a very small room. The rest of the world's got lots yep. and lots of people with lots and lots of ideas. Yep. 
And I thought, yeah, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to figure out how to be the most attractive company for all of those other people to want to work with. Right. And I'm going to pioneer a uh, publishing model that kind of brings all of the Hollywood business practices into Silicon Valley. Yep. And, uh, and for a while, it became kind of thought of as the new Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, and, then, and then once you've got that fundamental idea, a whole lot of pieces of it just become obvious. You know, so uh, think, okay, well, uh, even you know, things like, well, uh, musicians, they have a studio. What's the equivalent for it? Okay, we have to have better software development tools. Mm-hmm. And you know, in, the, in the beginning, you know, a, a, a developer would buy something like an Apple II, and they would basically program on the Apple II. That, that'd be like literally holding your iPhone yeah. and yeah, yeah. programming right on the screen of it. Yep. You know? yep. It was about that ridiculous. Yep. Well, I, it may be hard for folks that are you know, here, 20 to 22 years old, and, and maybe folks out there that are watching this, <clears throat> really realize how far thinking that was. So we have, we have terms like graphic arts today. He's a graphic artist. Graphic art. Those terms didn't exist. It's almost like the very, very, very beginning of electronic music. That wasn't music. People were like, that's hard. That's not music. They're not artists. What are they doing? That's a bunch of noise. And then the rest of the world catches up and says, oh, that actually is an art form. So you were one of the first people to just, you know, just say, no, this is art. And then and what a wonderful way to create that culture of bringing some of the best minds, people that were willing to basically program on their phone equivalent Right on a really slow, like my dad trying to do it on a slow computer with a tape drive. Um, those are the people that, I mean, I could see them resonating with that message and that idea that I said at the intro about the nerds making, giving the nerds the power, giving the, the creative people the power. I want to get back to EA, but we'll take the next uh, student question. Um, how would you recommend that a non-tech or design-oriented person get involved into an uh, industry like game development or publishing? That's a good question. <clears throat> the thing about the game industry is there, there are certain professions, or, or they're almost like silos, and they all operate very differently. So if, if you want to be involved on the technical side, you really should be in a good school and taking as many courses as you can about all the absolute state-of-the-art tools and you should be uh, studying math and be pretty good at that. So that, that's an example of a function in the game industry that requires a lot of education. And if you don't maintain that as you continue as an adult, you'll fall behind. Uh, on the, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you've got a profession like uh, game design. There, there are no courses in it. Uh, what, you guys can probably answer this question. What do you think is the best way to learn how to understand game design? Play games. <laughs> so one of the pathways into the game industry has always been the, the uh, gamers play a ton of games and then think, oh, I know how to make video games. Well, that, by the way, <laughs> is laughable. It's like me saying that if I listen to a song, I know how to make a song. So there's not that really right. that much of a connection. But if you play a lot of games, you will develop an understanding of game design. Yep. And if you're really thoughtful about it and you kind of critique the games that you're playing and say, well, you know what? What's good and bad about the, the uh, tutorial? What's good and bad about the you know, user design, uh, about the difficulty ramp, about the reward system, about the resources, about the strategy, whatever? Yep. And, and you start comparing that. You become kind of a critic. You'll, you'll develop a better understanding about game design. What happens in the industry is a lot of the gamers, they come to the game industry, and they can get jobs as a tester. Have you ever done that, worked as a tester in a video game company? I always thought that would be the coolest job ever. It's a pretty easy gig to get. There's a lot of churn. Uh, it's, it's somewhat brutal. The really special people, though, will get promoted out of it 
mm-hmm. and they'll get into the studio, and they'll initially maybe do something fairly menial, like uh, assistant production. But then if they've got some chops about game design and they've played a lot of games, then they can get, get in as a level designer. Mm. And then once you prove yourself that way, you know, pretty soon you could be an elite game designer. So that's, that's the, the, the profession that's the most wide open. And I think there needs to be more college-level curriculum in game design. I hope there will be in the next decade. But uh, at least for right now, that, that means it's much more entrepreneurial. You can make yourself into a very successful game designer. Well, I think that's one thing I always liked about the, the field is, you know, go back to id, back when Doom and Birkins, yeah, whatever Yeah, you make that, your own levels. You, right? and, you, and it was just a bunch of kids in Louisiana, right? Yeah. They weren't at the epicenter of creativity. They just wanted to play some cool games, and that was the early land, you know, mm-hmm. so the early local area networks were happening, so they created a game that worked on a local area network, and, and ended up, you know, that became a multi-hundred million dollar franchise, and it started out very, very mm-hmm. modest. Mm-hmm. So it, if you have a great idea, and you have, in, in, you know, it's super hard work, obviously, if you have the, the um, tenacity to sit down and pound it out, there's nobody stopping you, right? There's no barrier. Well, of course, these, these days, you know, any of you could publish an, an Apple game, an Android game, a right. Facebook game. These, these, these platforms are, I mean, the, 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 the policies and the license agreements are, you know, they have their draconian aspects. Yes, but for yes. you guys, they're fabulous. Right. There's ways to just get a chance to experiment in the real world and do your thing and stick it out there and see what happens. Again, it would be a you know, fabulous learning exercise. Yeah, just like musicians can put their own music out there. Writers mm-hmm. can put their own um, text out there. Uh, gamers, it's no different. So getting back to 1982-ish, you're starting, you're taking the leap. You, know, you, you um, end up getting Sequoia interested to the point where they incubate you inside their offices. So Sequoia is one of the leading venture firms, even to this day. Certainly back then it was well known. How did that come about? I mean, that seems like, was it, was it Steve? Was it the third Well, it's Steve a funny or? story because Sequoia had invested early at Apple okay. and had then exited too early. Oh, okay. They sold their stake in 1979 before we went public. Ah, I didn't know that. And I remember Steve and I just laughing about it because at the time... <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the price of the, uh, that round, it went from like 2 to 14. I mean, it went way the heck up. Right. And we had way more investors that wanted to put money in than we were going we to take. And then here's Sequoia deciding, oh, this is a good time to exit. Wow. And I was not on the board of directors, so I didn't know the dynamics. But I understood enough about Don's reputation, and I knew what, I knew what we were like at Apple. Right, right. I think, yeah, we, we must just drive him. He wants him, out. We must just drive him crazy. <laughs> right. And he's thinking, this is a good chance to exit. And I thought, okay. But, you know, Steve and I were just saying, yeah, we're going to make this guy look so stupid. But, you know, and that's a, there's a certain swagger. I, I, but then they backed you. So was I, it the same guy or was it a different guy? Well, I'm coming to that. I just want to make this point. Uh, it helps a lot to be, if you're an entrepreneur to have the swagger. Yeah, you got to have. And uh, going back to Steve, um, what Steve could do better than anybody ever is he could look you in the eye and have you really convinced I mean, that reality distortion field, right, man, he, right. I mean, whatever harebrained scheme he had, uh, it was going to change the world, and he could get you to buy into that. And wow, I mean, the, the, the self-motivation in the team, right. when you feel like you're on a mission from God, right. it's just a whole, at a whole different level. So anyway, I was fascinated that, that uh, Valentine had chosen to exit, but I kind of sympathized a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, around the time that I'm getting ready to leave Apple... Coburn comes in and says, uh, hey, I was on an airplane the other day, and I uh, thought you'd want to see this story about blah, blah, blah. And it was you know, some story that had to do with the office market, uh, which I had kind of led us into. But then I found another article in that magazine. 
and it was an article about Don Valentine. And you'll be surprised by this part of it because the part that appealed to me is, is, is it referred to his personality and how a guy had come into his office for a meeting and Don had intimidated him so badly that the guy had passed out. And, I, and that's where the light bulb for me went. I said, I want that guy, Don Valentine, on my board of directors. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, over the years, Don uh, came to call himself my hair shirt. Have you guys heard this phrase? You know, it's like you got hair on your chest is a symbol of your masculinity, if you're a guy. I mean, I hope it's not the other way. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the idea of hair shirt is that someone's not ma- someone who's not masculine enough needs to put on a hair shirt right, right. to get their masculinity. And Don liked to think of himself as my hair as shirt. As your hair shirt. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, Don's a real character. So I, I, I was uh, drawn to him and appreciated the fact that, yeah, this guy is going to kick my so and was he, he essentially your mentor? Was he, was he he's certainly that, one of them. I, yeah. I would say he's one of my most valuable mentors. And yeah. you know, one of my favorite things with Don is at the very beginning, before he led the uh, Series A, he took me out to lunch and he said, look, I just want to make it clear. <clears throat> I'm going to come into the board meetings and I'm going to rant and rave and I'm going to tell you what to do. And I just want you to know that if you do it, I don't want to make this investment. <laughs> because... If you're not willing to stand up to me right, right. and do what you believe in doing, no matter yep. what I say, then what the hell do I need you for? Yep. So, you know, again, it's one of these uh, moments where you have to step up and have the courage and the conviction about who you are and uh, you know, what, you, what opportunity you have. And, again, I've just always been drawn to people like that and appreciate uh, that, uh, that kind of test. Mm-hmm. And we had our moments. You know, there, was, uh, there was one fabulous meeting a few years down the line where we were almost out of money. And by, by the way, these great, these great companies like Electronic Arts, every one of these companies has stories about several times where they almost went over the edge. Yep. And you, know, you, have to, you have to have some, some circumspection about the fact that there's going to be failures uh, and occasional success. But it's kind of ludicrous to think that that you're going to steadily get better at what you do and steadily have more success. I mean, it, it, it's like Babe Ruth. Happens in the movies. Yeah, it's like, well, it's like Babe Ruth hitting a home run. I mean, he's going to strike out a few times in between the home runs. Yep. It's, just, it's kind of random. But at any rate, uh, we, we were doing some pretty radical things in the industry to reshape it. You know, because Electronic Arts invented uh, game publishing and asserted itself on the rules that everybody was following, and it got everybody to follow our rules. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was pretty radical uh, for a company that started out with you know, no market share. Right. And uh, at one point in this board meeting, Don literally was pounding on the table. He said, uh, he said uh, you know, this is crazy. You're trying to change the rules of the industry. What, uh, what makes you think you can get away with that? And they said, I don't really care. We don't really have a choice. We're not going to make it unless we make this work. Mm-hmm. Okay, he comes in in the next meeting. We report that, hey, it worked. And he pounds on the table again, and he says, you people must continue to challenge convention. <laughs> you know, as you know, with good investors, totally. they'll, they'll flip-flop uh, as Absolutely. needed to make their point. Right? I thought he was going to say it was his idea. That's <laughs> well, what I would have I you could get that, too. That was brilliant. Um, so you had Wozniak on that board as well. I mean, mm-hmm. looking back on it, I know those were just normal people that you worked with, but looking back on it, you know, you had Sequoia, which is, you know, venerated now. You had Wozniak on your board. 
Um, it, set, it feels like you had a lot of momentum looking back again. It feels like you had a lot of momentum, but at the time, how did, I'm sure it felt like it was Well, that was one of the lessons I learned at struggle. Apple, and I, and I think it's a, a, a reflection not just of Steve Jobs, but also of Mike Markula, and that both of them understood that if you're going to cook up a recipe, you should have the finest ingredients. Mm. So if you're going to have a PR guy, get the best PR guy. If you're going to have a banker, get the best banker, and so on and so forth, yep. and just have really high standards. And, of course, I you know, knew, knew everybody by the time I started my own company, that, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, we're going to make the best company. And I, in hindsight, I think this is maybe a little foolhardy. I, I don't know if it makes any sense. I don't know how you feel about it as a venture investor for every entrepreneur to say they're going to be number one in their field. I mean, it might be perfectly okay to be in the top 10 or the top yeah. five. And I think sometimes there's ego about wanting to be number one that may lead to some flawed decision-making. You know, and I, f- I feel somewhat guilty of that in, in some of the situations I've been in. But with electronic arts, man, I really believe that we had, that, that nobody else was really even a contender to be number one. Right. Uh, that that it, it, was a, it was a fresh start, and our ideas were just more advanced, and we were going to have the quality ingredients and the backing and you know, go do it, and yep. we did it. So I... My perspective on that, I don't invest in consumer-oriented things because I just think I'm very good at picking hits. But, um, you know, I do like folks that want to be number one, but I'll invest if number two and three is still lucrative. Right. right? There are some markets where number one's kind of it. Like, right. there's not a lot of twos and threes, but, um, but I love it here. I love to hear an entrepreneur say that that's what they want to do. We'll take, uh, let's take the next uh, student question, then I'm going to ask you about EA Sports. I read that the technology needed to support your ideas wasn't fully caught up when they were first released, which is why the full motion movement couldn't accommodate your system. How did your company cope with these issues? Uh, is that a question about 3DO or something else? 3DO. Well, we can jump to 3DO. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, so uh, uh, 3DO is a, a good example of a uh, mistake that I've repeated, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs do this, and, and you know, we can figure out something... That, we can figure something out before the public does and even before the rest of your employees figure out uh, something. In fact, you're probably not a very good CEO if you're not in the habit of, of being on the leading edge of the thinking in your organization and, in fact, having the capacity to figure things out before everyone else. You know, if you're not, if, you know, that's where you should have your best thinker, right? The problem with that is that you, you can talk yourself into thinking that everyone else is going to be able to understand something rapidly the way you did. And that, that affects how you implement things inside your organization. Sometimes it's a struggle because you can't successfully explain it or train people. And it's often a problem in the marketplace where you're trying to do something and it's just not time yet. It's not, it's not time for people to understand it yet. The feature phone is a good example. You guys, uh, I don't know how many of you had a feature phone before you had a smartphone. But I'm talking about things like the Motorola Razor. They have no idea. Flip phone. <laughs> yeah, flip phone. Remember phones. when you were in fourth grade, your mom gave you the flip phone? No. There you go. Uh, there were games. Uh, there were apps. Uh, there, 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 were, there were all kinds of things, and the public just didn't care. And, and uh, that, was, that was such a breakthrough with the iPhone was uh, after a decade of the whole mobile industry trying to convince the public to do more than just texting and right, voice calls, right, right. suddenly the expression of the iPhone was so imaginative yep. and so relatable that people said, i got to have that. Yep. And they immediately started thinking, yeah, this is a content platform, of course. And they're thinking, yeah, where you been? We've been trying to say this for a decade. For a decade. But yeah, if the, if the technology is not quite right or it's not quite fast enough or you can't express it in the right way, and in, and in many cases, you know, we, we'll, we'll, we entrepreneurs, you know, we'll get out front 
and the market's not quite there yet. The, the um, understanding and the education of the market's not quite there yet. Uh, somebody once told me that you'd better expect a market to grow at the same rate as a plague. <laughs> that a plague requires direct contact between people. And you know, you, you know with this hockey you know, shape thing, but it, it gets off to a very, very slow start. Mm-hmm. Of course, now we have the internet and social media and, and, uh, and everything else, so you can spread the word faster. But it's just very easy for entrepreneurs to get to market too early. Yeah, we tend to overestimate in the short term and then underestimate in the long term. Yeah, yeah but that's part of the pressure of entrepreneurship too. You know, everybody's what that in a means. hurry. Yeah. Oh, let's uh, let's take the let's be the first one totally. there. We'll take totally. the hill and yep. be the front runner. No, and it's hard for folks, you know, in their early twenties to understand that. But the the mobile phone was emerging for twenty years before it finally yeah, emerged, right. right? I remember WAP and all that stuff where it's finally here. And, oh shoot, no, it's not. Um, let's talk a little bit about EA Sports, how that came about. And I have a kind of a, a trivia type, a trivial question. Um, about John Madden, did he did he just improvise all that crap? I mean, I remember I, when I first started playing that game, I would laugh at all the stuff he said because it was so random and funny, and it was like he really was doing the commentary of a real game. So, did you guys write those lines, or did you just give him a mic? Well, it was, it was all scripted and organized. But oh, okay. the, the truth about John, first of all, he's a really smart guy. He's a big guy. He's a strong guy. He's like a very strong personality, very assertive. Very, very smart. Mm-hmm. And you can see why he would be a, good, a successful football coach. Yep. And if you're with him in person, every third word is the F word. I'm sure. <laughs> and it helped me appreciate his intelligence because he doesn't do that. He never slips up when he's on the air. Nice. And the character he created for himself, the persona that he came up with on air, yep. uh, is, is kind of a clown. Yeah. I mean, it's an ingenious clown who knows everything about football. But it appeals to a much broader audience. Right. You know, he, 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 uh, he became a gateway for a lot of women to become football fans. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, through the game, he opened up the younger demographic as well. So, I mean, yeah, he's, he's uh, obviously uh, an amazing ambassador uh, for, the, for the sport. Well, I hear, and I'm not just saying this because this is getting filmed, I hear the intelligence in what he says. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, wit and double entendre and things that go by really fast, and you have to be listening carefully to catch it. So I always thought the guy was probably, I've never met him, but I always assumed he was pretty, pretty intelligent. Yeah. So how, how did EA Sports come about? So you're in EA, we're probably like seven or eight years in at this point? Well, the thing is, if you, if you talk to any of my childhood friends, they would all say that I only started Electronic to Arts do to make the sports games <laughs> that I wanted to play with them, right. and I was going to rig it so that I couldn't lose to them. Nice. And yeah, that's, you got all that's the cheat codes. really not too far off, actually. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so the company was a vehicle for me to express that uh, hobby passion that I had. But I also believe that if it was done correctly, it would open up a big audience. John felt the same way about football. Mm. I mean, it's one of the reasons I wanted to work with uh, coaches, and I did that more than once, like Earl Weaver, the baseball coach. Yeah, oh, I know, the Orioles. And and certainly other uh, uh, great athletes that could talk intelligently, uh, like Kurt Schilling. Mm -hmm. I made a a baseball game with him and Mm -hmm. learned a lot about pitching from him. So you have an opportunity with guys like that to get, get the inside uh, point of view. And they obviously really know, they, they really know their thing. And you know, going back to, to John and his personality, uh, he's, he'd already been on the air for many years, yep. so he'd already said a lot of things. And of course, you know, we, we, we've got the videotape, so, so we, we know, we'd, we'd already figured out what stuff we wanted to have him say in the game. Right. And then you just have to have the, the database with all of the things that are going to be said and what situations you're going to use them in. You know, it's pretty straightforward. Yep. 
Well, but he I'm, did a good job of, of, of acting the, the yeah. part, right? Oh, yeah. Sometimes yeah, people yeah. can just get wooden when you give them a mic. And He's a genuine, again, it's part of his intellect that he knows how to throw a switch yep. and be a great entertainer. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. He made that game for me. I mean, the graphics and everything were great. That's a given, but just that whole narrative... Just kept it funny, kept yeah. it, kept it uh, so, so there's a, a few things to say about EA Sports that I think you guys would uh, really uh, benefit from hearing. So it starts out with this desire of mine mm-hmm. to have lo- authentic simulation where it's the real thing and you get to be the hero. And it's the real thing, so you're also learning about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, like many of other, the other brands that Electronic Arts <laughs> developed, we were kind of bottled up because the platforms were too expensive. And therefore, they weren't mass market. And there was a critical point where <clears throat> I, I uh, took the company on kind of a renegade maneuver where we reverse engineered the Sega Genesis at a time when Sega had literally almost zero market share. Mm. But they were going to be introducing the first 16-bit uh, game console. Mm-hmm. And we had not been a console company up to that point. So this is, a, th- this is the most important pivot in the history of the company was this decision. And literally about 15% of the employees quit over it because they wow. did not want to make console games. And was that we below actually, them? What was the... Pretty much. Really? So we've been saying for years, uh, computers are better than consoles. And they, and they were in many respects, but they're way more expensive. Yep. And you know, here's a very practical 16-bit system mm-hmm. for less than 200 bucks. And I, and I knew that, man, a whole bunch of our brands are going to flourish on this thing. But, you know, see, I've always been a freedom fighter. And I've always been a sucker for lost causes. So I, <laughs> I, I've always really believed in bringing as much freedom and capacity to the developers as possible. Yep. And I could tell that Nintendo was not about that at all. And Nintendo didn't really care if anybody made money other than Nintendo. And that's kind of how it played out. You know, if you look at the whole history of right. Nintendo, right. And they're finally being done in by their own business model, which right. is being used by Apple and Google. But uh, I, I didn't really want to support Nintendo, and here comes Sega with a, a better machine. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, well, Sega wants to copy Nintendo's license agreement, but I think there's an opening here where we could just reverse engineer the machine, figure it out for ourselves, and then not need a license. Now, for those of you who don't know about uh, copyright law and, and reverse engineering, you've got to go into a clean room, mm. and whichever brave souls cross that desert and figure it out, of course, they might fail, mm-hmm. but if they succeed, they figure out how it works, they can write their own uh, original document that describes how the machine works, and that's their own copyrighted information. Right. But in order to know how it worked, they had to violate copyright law while they were in the clean rooms. They had to look at stuff on the screen, showing the contents of memory and showing copyrighted program code. And that copyright infringement is allowed in a clean room as long as that human being does not exploit that information. So it's all, only what's in the memory? They not? can publish that document to others, but they don't get to use that information. Oh, really? Okay. So it's almost like open source. So you're taking some of your best engineers and saying, go in this room. Right. You, don't to, you, you don't get to take any tools with you. Right. Go in this room where there's barely even any furniture. Be a stone man, you know, a, a caveman with stone and invent your own tools, build them from scratch, and then take this mystery black box, figure out everything about how it works mm-hmm. down to the last detail, and then write it up. And then enjoy the next five years watching all of your buddies right, right. make games for it, but you won't be able to. Those are the biggest heroes wow. in the history wow. of electronic arts. 
didn't other people want to be in that clean room because it was so new and cool? Or did again, they some of them be? were just the right kind of people that were attracted to the challenge, and they were really fabulous, unselfish yep. team players, and I'll always be very fond of them. Right. And of course, you, know, you go off on that adventure. You don't know if you're going to cross that desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Lawrence of Arabia said, uh, you know, it, 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 just because nobody's ever crossed it and it, it is written, nothing is written unless you write it yourself. You know, we, we crossed that desert and figured it out, and uh, next thing you knew, we could pile dozens of our products onto that platform mm. because we had a lot of familiarity with that level of architecture. And, uh, and then on the, uh, on the eve of launching the products, just out of corporate responsibility, I was a public company CEO at the time, I thought, well, I really should go tell Sega <laughs> what I'm doing <laughs> and uh, suggest to them that as long as they don't want to charge me for it, I'd be happy to be business partners with them. And right. the, but the only thing about getting the license would be we could put their trademarks on our packaging. Mm-hmm. And we were prepared to you know, fight a lawsuit with them, uh, et cetera. Anyway, uh, uh, much to my delight... I would think they'd be excited to have all the games. Oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, the funny thing is uh, they wanted to just blow us out of the water. And Nintendo uh, blew two other companies out of the water that tried to do that with their machines. Mm, okay. And, and uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a very scary thing. You know, back in the old IBM mainframe days, it was yep. a big battle between uh, IBM and, and third-party guys trying to make exactly. compatible peripherals exactly. and stuff. Yep. It's a big legal battleground. So, uh, so at any rate, uh, uh, Sega wanted to blow us out of the water. But once we had figured it out, I had gone around to my competitors, and I said, hey, we got this knowledge. And I'll sell it to you if you want to use it. And then we'll join forces and share legal costs in the lawsuit. Mm. And if you don't want to develop and publish your own games, I'll pay you for that, those games, and I'll publish them. Mm, nice. Okay, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, how many of you, if you're running a competitor to EA, would have said, yeah, let's do that? Well, that's exactly what happened. All these guys basically saying, are you kidding me? That's, don't get sued. That's really risky. That's scary. We're not going to do that. Yeah. All those companies suffered because they didn't come to the platform. Uh, I, did, uh, I did license, I think, something like 27 of their games. So it helped us you know, expand our product sure. catalog. Uh, the funny thing is that Sega heard about this. They heard I was going around having these conversations. And they were uh, worried that I could destroy their entire third-party licensing program. That why would anybody get a license with Sega if they could get one from Trip? Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. I had no idea. I didn't know that. That wasn't your intent. Well, it, was, it would have given me, it, as it turned out, I didn't really need to know. I was very determined to not pay an ongoing royalty. And these were the days where you were paying about $10 per unit, and it drove up the price of the products uh, quite a bit. And, what was the average game back then, cost-wise? Uh, so uh, at retail, the average game was probably 40 to $50. Okay. The wholesale price, therefore, you might think of as 20 mm. And if you're paying a $10 fee right. per unit... right, right. And then on top of that, the cartridges had a manufacturing cost that was almost $10 also. Wow. So you had to crank up your price just really? to create a little margin. Yeah, it, it was very, very challenging. So we, we wanted to do our own, we're going to do our own manufacturing and basically not pay a license fee. What I said is, here's what we'll do is we'll pay you $2 a unit for a million units. And then we'll and stop. Then nothing. <clears throat> and they said, no, uh, we'll, you should just keep paying us $2 per unit. Everyone on my management team said, Trip, you've done a great job. Take it. Don't insist on the cap. Right. And I said to them, you know, uh, I really think I can get this. And it's even worth it to wait for a period of months and wait for the lawsuit and show them that we've got conviction about fighting the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. 
in hindsight, I realize this is a really crazy thing to say. But again, it's uh, I think part of the uh, the courageous attitude of an entrepreneur, yep. and, and maybe uh, just you know conviction about your belief and underestimation of the complexity and the risk involved. And I got away with it because within days they agreed to my terms, and so we we uh, were at the uh, the big show and you know announced that we were going to uh, be partners together. And next thing you knew, that machine had uh, half the market. Wow! And we had half of the games on it. Oh, what's brilliant about the way you structured that is you were only paying that royalty to the extent you were selling games. So you weren't on the hook for paying millions of dollars if it hadn't worked out. It saved the company a huge amount of money. Yes. Absolutely, at a critical time, a huge amount of money. And there was a second piece of this because, of course, as soon as that deal got done, and I was like, this is going to be great for the next five years. The only problem is they're going to be sharpening the knives the whole time. Mm. And that's what gave birth to the 3DO. But the footnote on the story is that 3DO didn't make it. And there's a whole bunch of reasons there. Right. But Electronic Arts had a good deal with 3DO to only pay $2 a unit. And when Sony came calling and said, we want you to throw 3DO under the bus. Mm. We want to take all your good games from 3DO and bring them over to Sony PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, okay, well, we're not going to, you know, look, they give us $2 a unit. You know, Trip's our founder. Right, right. You know, we couldn't possibly screw trip right, right, unless right. you're... You Paid us more. <laughs> and uh, Sony agreed to it. So, so, so here you have EA. Uh, at the time we started this, this uh, Sega thing, mm-hmm. the whole company, it's a public company that had declined in value for two years. The market cap was $60 million. <laughs> two years later, it was $2 billion. Wow. Another few years later, it was $20 billion. So that was it. Those are the, the, the pivot points yep. that created the value. <laughs> Trip, this was wonderful. Thanks so much. Great to see you again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.